Would you bow your heads and would you pray together with me? Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as we meditate together on your word for us today, Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is our rock and our redeemer, the source of hope in our lives. Amen. Well, these last four weeks, as we've been working our way through the book of Ezekiel, we have seen four different visions. We've seen the vision of a a glowing man on a throne supported by angels and flying up from the temple and heading to the east. We've seen a rebellious wife who turns her back on her husband. And then, most importantly, we've seen that husband receive that wife back with unconditional love and forgiveness. We've seen shepherds who are fat and happy. And the reason they're fat and happy is because they're devouring their own sheep. And we've seen a valley of dead, dry bones come back to life. And with each one of those visions, we have heard a message for God's people who were in exile back in Ezekiel's day and a message of hope for us today as well. We have heard that no matter where we go, no matter what we are going through, God is always with us. We have have heard that no matter what we do, no matter how many times we might turn away from our God, that God will never stop loving us. We've heard about a God who is willing to shepherd us as his flock, as his sheep, and lead us through struggles to streams of living water and to pastures. And we've learned that even death, even death itself, cannot separate us from God's love. Four visions of hope for the people back then and for us today as well. But now this week, we have one last vision to take a look at, taken from Ezekiel 47 that we heard read just a little bit ago. It's it's an interesting image, a, a kind of dramatic image of water trickling down from the temple in Jerusalem and, and, and flowing out through the east gate and down the steps and uh, into the Kidron Valley all the way to the Dead Sea. And everywhere that that water goes, we're told it brings life. It's a river that grows deeper and deeper and deeper, so deep eventually that you can't even cross it. Now, I want to make sure that you have a clear picture of exactly um, what this vision was supposed to be, what it was looking like. Here's a, here's a little map, and you can see there the, the temple mound where Solomon's temple was. That was the, the temple that was in vision uh, for this vision. And you can see where the water would have flowed from that temple down into this Kidron Valley that runs along the side of the temple. And, and eventually, if you zoom out far enough, you'll see Jerusalem there and <clears throat> flowing all the way to, <clears throat> to the Dead Sea. Now, if you're not aware, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's dead. That nothing lives in the waters there. It's the lowest point on the surface of the earth. And so what happens is, as water flows into the Dead Sea, it has nowhere else to go. And so it stays there until it evaporates. And when it evaporates, it leaves behind all the salts and the minerals that were in that water. And eventually, over time, years and years and years of that, the Dead Sea has grown saltier and saltier, and nothing can live in it anymore. 
In fact, if you go to Israel, they, they, they let you go out and swim in the Dead Sea, but in, first of all, it's kind of amazing because the water is so dense from all these salts and minerals that you, you literally, I mean, you like stand there and you're floating like waist up out of the water. It's so dense. But they also warn you to be extremely careful to not let your head go under the water because if any of that gets in your eyes or, or in your mouth, it's, 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 well, remember, it's dead, right? And, and so it's toxic. It's not good for you at all. And, and so the, the vision here, the image here is of water flowing from the temple, God back in his temple. Remember how the first week we saw God leaving his temple to be with his people in exile. But now the vision is God is back in his temple and he is the source of this living water that will transform the region from dry and desert and dead to a beautiful oasis. Now, I think the promise for the people of Ezekiel's day is pretty clear, isn't it? God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and what he's saying is, not only is he going to restore them as God's people back in the land, but he's going to renew that land. He's going to give new life to that land. He's going to make it the, the, the paradise that God has promised his people that, by the way, the Garden of Eden was in the first place. It's a beautiful promise of hope, again, for those people there in Ezekiel's day. But there's much more going on here. You see, by the time we get to Jesus' day, this reading, this vision from Ezekiel was used every year, once a year for something called the water festival that happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the big holidays of Jesus' day. It, it happened there in the city of Jerusalem and people would come from all over to gather there in Jerusalem for this festival. It was a seven day long festival from Sabbath to Sabbath. And, uh, and every day of the festival had different things going on, except there was uh, every day of the festival, the same thing happened every morning. And again, it was called this, this water festival. And, um, and, and the reason th they would do this is because this festival happens um, late in the fall, at the end of the dry season. You see, there in Israel, in, in, in the Jerusalem area, it will go months with no rain at all through the dry season. But in the end of the dry season, in the fall, the rains come again. The rains return. I was uh, in uh, Jerusalem, or in, actually in Nazareth, one year. Um, and we were there kind of late in the fall because it's cooler then, it's, it's more comfortable. But what you risk going late in the fall is if the rainy season comes a little early, it can make it kind of hard to get around because all of a sudden it's pouring everywhere you go, right? And, and so our hope when we were going on this trip, our prayer literally was that the rains would hold off until we got done with our trip. Well, it didn't happen. There in Nazareth that day, all of a sudden there were clouds in the sky and then the clouds opened and it was pouring rain. First of all, I think our guide made a lot of money because he produced a whole bunch of umbrellas to sell us when that happened, right? But, uh, but, but it was, we were, as tourists, we were really disappointed. We're like, oh, dang it, now it's raining. Now wherever we go, it's going to be raining. Uh, but, but the people there were not disappointed at all. 
They were, they were thrilled. Literally, there were people out, you know, letting the rain just wash over them. There were kids playing in the puddles. There was, it was a huge celebration. And if you think about it, you can imagine why. If, if there's been no rain for months and months and months, and it's been dry for months and months and months, that rain, is, it, it brings new life. It's, it's refreshing. Now, in Jesus' day, that would have been even more important. I mean, today in Israel, you can always turn on the faucet and get water. They have desalination plants and, and water's there all the time. But in Jesus' day, remember, they didn't have any of that. Other than a few springs here and there, there was no way to get fresh water. So they had these huge aquifers that would fill with water during the rainy season. And then as the, rain, as the dry season went on, those aquifers would be drawn lower and lower and lower until it was getting to the point where if the rains didn't come soon, you weren't going to have any water. So this, this festival would celebrate the fact that the rainy season was about to come. And, uh, and, and here's what would happen. The priest would start up in the temple and, uh, and then there would be a procession down to a, a spring called the Gihon Spring or the Pool of Siloam. It was you know, a few hundred yards away from the end of the Temple Mound. And they would process down there and they would fill that jug full of water. And then they would carry it back up into the temple area where they would pour that water out onto the steps of the temple while they were reading the reading that we read earlier in the service, this vision from Ezekiel of water flowing from the temple. Now, I, I have to tell you that if you think about it, the contrast was probably pretty stark. I mean, you pour out a bucket of water and it just kind of makes a little puddle, right? But you're reading about this huge river that was going to flow out of the temple. But it was a great day of celebration every day for the festival as that priest would pour out that water and, and they, would, they would celebrate the fact that they believed God was going to send the rains again, that God was going to bring new life every year through those rains in the fall. In fact, the Talmud says this, why did the Torah enjoin us to pour out water on tabernacles? The Holy One, blessed be he, said, pour out water before me on tabernacles so that your rains this year may be blessed. In other words, they believed by pouring out that water every day, it was almost as if they were reminding God to send the rain and that God was promising to send the rain again. Now, we're told that this was a huge celebration every day. This parade, this water parade was kind of like Mardi Gras. You know, you see those videos from down in, in, in New Orleans. And in fact, one ancient rabbi said it this way. He said, anyone who has not seen this water ceremony has never seen rejoicing in his life. Now, in John's gospel, we're told an interesting story about Jesus. You see, it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was a Sabbath. And so you couldn't do work on the Sabbath. And so they've been processing with water from the spring for six straight days. But now the seventh day, they can't do that because carrying a jug of water would be work. And so instead of the procession, instead of the big celebration and parade, they simply gather on the steps and there's no water to pour out. But they would still read that reading from Ezekiel and, and pray that God would send the rain. And it's at that moment we're told that Jesus stands up and begins to shout. 
So picture this. It's been six days of celebration of water being poured out on the temple steps. Now it's day seven, no water to pour. And in the midst of that crowd, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about the impact that must have had on the crowds as Jesus said those words. It's dry. They can't wait for the rains to come again. The aquifers are getting low. They're wondering, will the rains come in time or are we gonna go thirsty for a while? And even, even on this last day of the festival, there's no water to pour out on the steps like the last few days. And Jesus stands up and says, if you want real water, if you're really thirsty, Jesus says, here's the solution, it's me. He was trying to help them understand where their true hope could be found, where true joy could be found. Now, what Jesus was trying to help them understand is, just like the rains would come in the fall, and, and the desert would spring to life again. Just like God had promised to the people in Ezekiel's day that someday he would restore their land and make it the Garden of Eden it had been designed to be in the first place. All of those things together, Jesus said, culminated in him. And Jesus said, I am the one that makes all things new. I am the one that brings life where there is death. I am the one that brings hope and joy. You know, you have to think about those words of Jesus when you read the book of Revelation, don't you? Because in the book of Revelation, this is what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. By the way, did you notice how our reading earlier ended? after there's been this incredible vision of this water flowing from the temple and bringing life even down to the Dead Sea, it ended with these words, this assurance that this presence of water there and life there meant that God was with his people. And there it is, again in Revelation. And he says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Folks, the promise to us is that one day Jesus is going to come again. And anything that is wrong in our lives, anything that is dead in our lives, anything that is less than what God planned in our lives will, will be restored. God will make all things new, your life and mine. That is his promise to us. Jesus is that source of living water in our lives now and someday when he comes again. But there's one little twist in this last vision, I wanna make sure you don't miss. I mean, up until this point, we've, been, we've seen these visions who brought hope to the people of Ezekiel's day, and, and we have found that same hope for us in our lives. And this vision is no different. It promises us hope as we've just been talking about. But notice again what Jesus said. 
Not only did he say, if you're thirsty, you come to me, but then he says this, he says, whoever believes in me in the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, the promise of this vision that Jesus claimed on that Feast of Tabernacles 2,000 years ago and that he delivers to us through his word today is that not only is he a source of living water for us, but for those of us who believe, we become a source of living water for those around us. In other words, folks, this hope that we've talked about these last five weeks, it's not meant just for you. It's not meant just for me. We are to be people of hope in the world around us. And, and boy, if now isn't a time when people need hope, I don't know when. So here's the final challenge for you as we wrap up this series today. Who is it that needs hope in your life? Is it a, a, a coworker who's struggling coming back to the office because they're afraid? Is it, um, is it a, a family who's going through um, sickness or, or disease or struggle right now? Is it a, a neighbor who's been alone far too long? Is it, is it someone in your own family? Who needs God's hope? We've spent these last five weeks uh, listening and hearing about God's hope for our lives, these promises of a God who will never forsake us, of a God who loves us unconditionally, of a God who is always there to lead us through the difficult times of life, of, of, of a God who promised us that even death cannot separate us from his love, of a God who brings new life and makes all things new. But those promises, again, aren't just for you and for me, they're for all people. And so here's my challenge for you this week. Share that hope with someone. Either tell them about God's help or, or, or show them God's help in a tangible way. Bring hope into the world around you today. Just like we saw that, 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 that map of hope flowing from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea. Let's see hope flow from this place into the lives of everyone around us in our community. Amen.